So good morning. We are in Matthew. Really, we're going to be starting Mark, but we're going to finish up a couple thoughts from Matthew because I kind of had to really blow through it last time, and so I wanted to touch on just a few points as we finish up Matthew. And Mark, notably, is a good bit shorter than Matthew, so I don't think it'll take us as long to cover it anyway. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Good. Our family has one of those days where we got up early and we're still running late, so that's just kind of the morning we're having so far. I don't know what it's been like for y'all, but I'm still getting settled mentally, I guess. I don't know. So, last week we studied the Gospel of Matthew, and, we, and I'm just as a, a way of recap, we talked about these big three major themes, that in Matthew he talks about Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, uh, Matthew portrays Jesus intentionally as this new Moses, as kind of the latest in the line essentially of godly men, of godly heroes. And we understand that Jesus is more than a man as the son of God. But, but he portrays him as the, the latest thing God has been doing through his covenant people. And so we see that by his portrayal of the new Moses as the teacher from the mountain, as the reinterpreter of the law. And we talked about some of the details about that last week. The second thing is this big idea of the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, the kingdom of heaven being uh, true, really the, the church. That is, it is through the kingdom by which God's people will be restored, which brings us really tied right into number three, which was the identity of what kingdom people look like. And so for, for Christians, there was instruction in the gospel on how what God is doing has these Jewish roots and how it fulfills the promise of the Old Testament and what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection is instrumental to our identity as kingdom people. And so we talked about how Matthew's gospel uh, really sharply criticizes the, the Pharisees and the scribes that we see often that conflict Jesus has with them and how Israel's Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, was rejected and really in many ways put to death at least in part at the hands of the Jewish authorities. And so Jesus, as the Messiah, he also pronounces judgment on them and he brings salvation not exclusively to the Jews, but to all, uh, all nations. Salvation to the Gentiles. All nations into the earth. Judea, Samaria, into the earth. Whatever phrasing you want to use. But what I wanted to do is talk a little bit about some of these parables. Because I feel like these parables do, us, do a good job of showing us what, what he was trying to show, what God was trying to teach, really, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. And we see this kind of because of the themes in Matthew's gospel. These are a handful of parables that are unique. You only find them in Matthew. They're not in Luke. They're not in Mark. They're not in John. And so I think they're particularly helpful for understanding what, what the early church was going through, what, what the Jews who were, going, who were or the early Christians would have, kind of, how they kind of would react to the gospel message and what was trying to be taught to them. And so I wanted to read just a couple verses. Uh, someone start us off and read for us. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 5 through 7. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you, how far? 5 through 7. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, we've, we've seen this line before from Jesus, right? Back in Matthew 4, that's how he inaugurated his ministry. But he says when he first sends them out, he says, do not go to the Samaritans. And you know the Samaritans were another Jewish sect. Uh, and he says, do not go to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. 
And so when we think about this, this illustration that we use all the time, talk about God's people as a flock, and of course God is the shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd, we see this, this illustration that he, he's not going in a new flock, right? He's not going to go sell all the sheep and buy horses. He's not going to be totally different, but that God's covenant people were continued, and he, he wants the Jews to become part of this new thing he is doing. Paul uses the same language. He says the gospel is given first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And so we see Jesus really trying to bring in those, those lost sheep of Israel, the people who are, who are Jews, who are still part of the nation of Israel, but they're not recognizing what God is doing. And we see that over and over in Jesus' ministry. They're rejecting him. They're questioning his authority. They're challenging him. And so when Jesus sends out the disciples, he sends them to these, these lost sheep of Israel. If you flip over to Matthew 23... In Matthew 23, we also see Jesus's, I hesitate to use such an informal word as rant, but long discourse, maybe we'll say, against the Pharisees, against the scribes. I'll read just a couple of verses. When he starts by saying at the top of the chapter, he is speaking to uh to his disciples about these scribes and Pharisees. He says, they sit in Moses' seat. But look at verse 4. He says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. And so we, if we consider the, the other illustration we've heard of them as the flock or as the lost sheep or as, the, as God's people as really a, a flock and him as the shepherd, another common illustration is that light to the world. That through God's covenant people, all nations will be blessed, right? That was the promise he gave to Abraham. Through you, all nations will be blessed. The, Is the Israelites, the Jewish people, were supposed to obey the covenant law of the Lord, be obedient to God in such a way that it brought other people to God. And we, think, we talk about the church in the same language, right? That we are supposed to be the kind of people who draw other people to God because of the life we live. And Jesus is really criticizing the authorities, and he's saying, you know, you don't help people obey the law, you don't bring people into accordance in the law, but what you rather do is you, you bind up heavier burdens and lay them on men's shoulders that you yourselves would not move with one finger. And so again, if we looked in, and this is the same section where he pronounces the, the woes, the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees over and over for the things that they've done and the things that they're, they're not understanding, that they're, how they're missing the point. And so again, Matthew's gospel heavily emphasizes that portrayal of Jesus as, as trying to specifically minister to the Jews, but is over and over really rejected by the Jewish authorities. Um, last, last week we briefly talked about the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, I want to read a couple verses of the, the field and the weeds. Go to Matthew 13. Someone read for us Matthew 13, verse 24 through 30, please. Another parable, he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a 
crop, then his tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow this seed in your field? How will you have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done that. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them into, in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Has anyone ever heard the, the, the language used to describe the Old and New Testament of uh, immediate versus delayed judgment and, uh, I'm sorry, immediate judgment and salvation versus delayed judgment and salvation? Have you heard that kind of language before in talking about the Old Testament and New Testament? I'm getting a lot of blank stares, and I'm taking a no. Um, but if you study the Old Testament, we see, I mean, we can see by numerous examples that when God's people are disobedient, there is very often, especially early on, right, and we think about Moses, we think about Joshua, there is swift and immediate judgment. When the people don't listen, I mean, think of the example of the sin of Achan when Joshua begins. He says, I want you to do this. They do it, immediate reward. They're immediately granted the city. They're immediately let into to begin their conquest. They disobey him. What happens? He calls them forward, and there is immediate punishment for sin. As time goes on, and sort of the covenant and the dynamic with God changes, Jesus uses this illustration to say it is like a man who, who sowed good seed, but the enemy came along and essentially sowed bad seed. And so when the grain sprouts and it produces a crop, there's also these weeds with it. And so the, the servants ask this question, did you not sow good seed? The gospel, or the, the message of the Lord, the word of God, is the good seed. Now, if God's word is given to the world, we look out in the world and say, well, not everyone has obeyed it, so the seed is not good. No. God has planted the good seed, but we know, we know through, again, numerous scripture examples about we, we fight the spiritual powers of the world, we're in the spiritual warfare, as Paul says. We know the enemy is sowing seed just as well, and so it says the weeds have grown up with the good the good crop. And he says, you want us to go then and gather them up. I'm going to, without getting too off into a deep dive on the parables, there's this, there was this mentality among the Jewish authorities that, well, God has given us this place of authority, right? I'm still a temple scribe. If I was, if I was doing something wrong, would God not have taken that away from me? Surely. Because again, in the Old Testament, we see that oftentimes God acts with immediate judgment versus immediate reward. And so there's this idea that clearly we're doing something right because we are still in power in, in our temple, in our nation. And I think if you've been with us in our study of the Old Testament, I think they've apparently learned nothing from the, the Babylonian exile, right? Where God tried to teach them, no, it is not simply by your blood that you are saved, that you must be obedient to the law. Anyway... They look around and they say, well, well, God has not harvested us, killed us, essentially, so surely we're still doing good. And he says, no, no, no. The servant says in verse 29 in Jesus' parable, no, lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, essentially, gather up what is good, gather up what is, what is not good. And so there's this idea that a harvest is coming. Make no mistake that a harvest is coming, but we are sowing good seed while there is an enemy sowing bad seed. And so do not think just because you are sprouting and growing now that a harvest will not come later. Does that kind of hopefully clear that up a little bit? And so the, the Jewish, again, 
this reveals to us a little bit about just the attitude of the, the Jewish authorities and what the people that Jesus was first trying to minister to, that the gospel was first given to, as we talked about. This kind of shows us some of their mentality. And like I said, I just, something I think is very interesting is if you look at the, the content that is just in Matthew's gospel versus Mark versus Luke, you see how he really had this intention of trying to, we, we call it the, the gospel to the Jews, and you can see that he was really trying to reach people. He was really trying to show that, that they had rejected the message of God. Mm -hmm. Trying to count any more of these. We'll go quickly to the, uh, the wise and foolish maidens in chapter 25. You've probably heard this before in Matthew 25. This is where he talks about the great white throne judgment, of course, being parted like sheep and goats, right from left. Before he does that, he gives the, uh, another parable of the, the ten virgins, the ten maidens, the ten uh, bridegrooms. And since in, I'll read a few verses for us. He says now, beginning in Matthew 25, verse 2, Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. So if we read this parable, if we read the parable of the, the labors in the vineyard that we mentioned last week, if we consider the, the parable of the field with the weeds or the unforgiving servant, what would you say Jesus' message to the, to the Jews might be at this time? Be prepared. Be prepared. Someone read just verse 13 of Matthew 25. Watch therefore, you know me, for the day nor the hour of the Son of Man coming. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He is saying, be ready. Be ready to give an account, right? We've heard that kind of language before too. Be ready to, to stand on the works you have done or not done. And so Jesus tries very hard to teach, to, to reach those Jewish authorities who are always in conflict with him and tell them, tell them what they're missing out on, you know. Any other questions about the Gospel of Matthew? Questions, comments, concerns, etc.? All right, well, we will move right on. As I said, Matthew often called the kind of the, the audiences typically are held as the Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Gentiles, and I would even expand that to say to the outcasts, to the nations, uh, however we want to phrase it. Let's talk about the gospel according to Mark. If you feel so inclined and brave, tell me something you have heard before about the Gospel of Mark. Well, about 30 seconds ago, I heard that it was written to the Romans. <laughs> Man's paying attention. He says, I heard it was written to the Romans. That's funny. 
If you have the King James, you would recognize most scriptures from the Gospel of Mark because you're probably familiar with this line straight away. Straight away appears over and over in the Gospel of Mark, immediately, uh, in the middle of the action, there, right thereafter. Gospel, <clears throat> Mark's Gospel is known for its kind of its hurried account of Jesus. Uh, if you're looking just at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of them is significantly shorter than the others. And so Mark chooses kind of select scenes from Jesus' life and portrays a very a quick sense of motion and action as we go from scene to scene. And again, just a, an interesting note if you're comparing them side by side, Matthew and Luke have more events than Mark has, but the events that Mark has he tells with greater detail. And so again, we seem to see some intentionality in the things that he chooses, so very similar to John. Right? We know if we read the Gospel of John that John doesn't talk about everything that's in Matthew and Luke. And he acknowledges this. We talked about this when we started our series. But he, he chooses them for a reason. There's intentionality and there's, of course, inspiration in what happens here. But Mark uh, is likely a Gentile Christian. The, we identified him with very likely the, the disciple and companion of Peter, who's mentioned in Acts, John Mark. And we see from Mark's gospel, in contrast to Matthew's, Mark seems to be written to a very non-Jewish audience. We see that because a couple different times he explains Jewish customs or leaves out details that are particular to the situation about things like the Sabbath or about things like hand washing, things like ritual sacrifices. He either doesn't address or he has to explain what they are. He assumes his audience does not know what he's talking about. Um, there's zero mention of Samaritans. We talked about Samaritans in Matthew. You've probably heard of the Good Samaritan in Luke. Uh, Mark makes no mention of Samaritans. Why? If the Samaritans were a Jewish sect, that if you were a Gentile, you just said, oh, they're just Jews who don't like the other Jews. I don't know who Samaritans are. So again, these, these little details are why, like I probably say, well, why, if you've heard Mark was the gospel to the Romans, and you're saying, well, why do we know that? How do we know that? These little details are kind of how we can piece it together. A major theme in Mark is it, it picks up on the, the theme in Jewish scripture of God's love being met by failure, but then God renewing his love, renewing his promise, renewing his covenant for the people. As we spent many weeks studying, you know, uh, the books of the law, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, who can say that the history of God's people is identified by anything other than the complete and utter failure of mankind? <laughs> Because over and over we mess up, but then what happens over in that same vein by the failure of man, but yet the renewal and the grace of God. Because over and over the people do not do what he says and things go horribly awry. And then over and over God sits down and he renews the covenant with them. Almost every book in those, those history books we mentioned has somewhere in it, usually at the end, a, a scene of renewal of the covenant. Because God says, look, I get it. You messed up. You guys have really screwed this up this time. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're, we're, we're going to kind of wipe the slate clean. We're going to start over. We're going to promise again to be faithful to this law. And so Mark picks up on that theme. Why do we say that? Well, if you look at the disciples in Mark, uh, a lot of the stories where the disciples seem confused, or they don't seem to get it, or if you've uh, seen the various scenes of Peter seeming to put his foot in his mouth whenever Jesus is speaking, come from Mark. Because the disciples almost are all portrayed as uh, confused or lost, which means if you're a new Christian reading the gospel and you read Mark, you go, hey, that looks like me. <laughs> this makes me feel better about my life. And so the audience, 
if I've hit all three already, of author, audience, and purpose. His audience was written to not, he was not a Jew, he was a Gentile Christian. He was probably Roman. It was probably written to other Gentile Christians in Rome. Without diving into the history of it, more than likely in the early church, it would be a long time before Jews really left the Holy Land um, in any permanent fashion. So most of our Christians in Rome would have been Gentiles. They would not have been Jews anyway. But we also know the Christians in Rome, very quickly after Jesus' death, very quickly after Jesus' death, the Christians in Rome came under great persecution. And this started, of course, in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome. But then it spread out to, to really the known world, the persecution of Christians in the, in the couple hundred years after Christianity. If we think about other writings in the Bible that were written to Christians in Rome who were being persecuted, I would suggest you consider Revelation. And that might sound very odd, but yes, there are passages in Mark and passages in Revelation that I could say, yeah, these are the same audience, and here is why. They address these, these similar themes. That's because they were both written with the intention of addressing the persecution of Christians in Rome and um, applicable to Christians anywhere, obviously. But reminding them that even when Jesus was on the earth, the disciples had failings, but, but God was with them. God remained faithful to them. God led them through those and, and discipled them, and they matured. And then there's also this emphasis on Jesus as, as the ability, having the, Jesus being the one to have the ability to heal, to work miracles, to strengthen you even in times of persecution. And so healing and suffering, big, big, big themes in the gospel of Mark. You might say, well, how can Jesus heal and Jesus suffer at the same time? Well, if you look at Jesus' life, I mean, the number one thing he was known for during his ministry was the healing he brought everywhere. It was the number one defining event of his life was probably when he suffered. And so Mark does a very good job of, of really emphasizing the healing of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. And we'll talk about why that's important in a little bit. So Mark, written by a Gentile Christian, disciple and companion of Peter, intended for non-Jewish Christians in Rome, specifically those who are being persecuted. Someone read for us Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I'm sorry, read 10 and 11, please, as well, if you don't mind. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am very pleased. You are the beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I would say this is a great opening statement on what the entire Gospel of Mark is going to be about. It came to pass that this man named Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized by a man named John, which is all we hear about John the Baptist, really, in uh, Mark. I'm sorry, Mark opens with John the Baptist. That's all we hear about where Jesus came from and how he was born. But it came to, Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized by John. And when he came up out of the water, a voice said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is the Son of God. Like I said, those are, I would say, some of the major themes that get explored in Mark's gospel. I got a question. Sure. Right there where he said, you are my beloved son, after he was baptized, no, I'm well pleased. Mm -hmm. When do we become a son of God? After we're baptized. 
as, as he mentioned as the Son of God anywhere before that that you know of. So or anybody knows of. Mark starts with his baptism, so it's hard to say. But in Matthew, there is a lot of uh, there's there's two points in Matthew where which the language about Jesus changes. And yes, one is his baptism. We see that Son of God language is only used from that point onward. And then there's other language that we could look at on how Jesus is described as changed at his transfiguration when he reveals to them kind of the, the full scope of things. Well, I, I know they were together when they were creating the earth. It said, let us do this, let us do that. Mm -hmm. Both of God and Jesus Christ was creating the earth, creating all things. But yeah. was he mentioned as a son then? Or was it after he was baptized? I think after he was baptized is when the said, Matthew starts using that language of the Son of God. Yeah. Okay. I never thought about it till just then when she said that. Yeah, that's it's a, a lot there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff we can if we just study and find out. Well, even if just talking about the the names right for now, Jesus, the names for God could be a study to itself. See, right now, what's wrong with the world? They got the timing of the things that are in the gospel mixed up with our timing, our timing right now. So that's a good point. Mark, like I said, Mark talks a lot. There's a, a good chunk in Mark that talks about uh, the temple and the end times eschatology. Again, I, I tell you, it's because of the persecution that's going on. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of the gospel, what that means, and maybe perhaps more importantly, what it does not mean. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to interfere. I didn't no, you're, you're all right. I Luke just never thought about that before. Luke 135, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you, therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Hmm. So, in telling. Well, like I said, there's, I would, it's a very interesting study, but it is not this study. But the, the language for both God in the Old Testament and the way they talk about Jesus in the New Testament is very interesting. There's a lot of patterns you could look at on how, why they use this title this way, why they use this term of address this way. Um, we will talk about a little bit of those because you so since we're talking about this uh, son of God and then almost paradoxically son of man are very common terms in Mark okay, I'm going to leave it on there for now very common terms in Mark for Jesus some of the big concepts in Mark like I said the healing and suffering of the Messiah and then the Messiah as the suffering servant, if you remember when we studied the prophets, Isaiah 53, it is a very, very important keynote chapter on this idea. But this idea of the Son of God, the Son of Man, in the day of the Lord. Now those of you who have been in our, our Wednesday night class studying the minor prophets, what do we know about the day of the Lord? Or if you're not in class and you just know anyway, go ahead. Join <laughs> in. You may have to enlighten us. The day of the Lord is uh, when judgment comes. And it's used in the minor prophets talking about when his mercy gives way to justice. Mm. And uh, So there will come a time where the, the righteous get lifted up and the punished get struck down. Yeah, where God's mercy runs out. We, we see this language used over and over again towards God's people when they're being disobedient. 
But when they're not being faithful, when they're straying from his word, over and over, we, we see this language of the day of the Lord is coming. And, and the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is not a good thing. <laughs> but when we talk about the day of the Lord and we talk about uh, the judgment, and obviously in the church we certainly look forward to the next life as a good thing. And I think just culturally, uh, because of other things I want to get into, we tend to see this as a good thing. It is made very clear to God's people in the Old Testament when they are being disobedient that the day of the Lord is a, a terrible and fearsome thing. And if you think about when that language gets emphasized, again, it's, it's when the people are being disobedient. I mean, I mean, how many times in your childhood did the phrase, when your dad gets home, use positively? Not too many that I can think of. Why? Because if we had to resort to that, things were not good. <laughs> If you're obedient, I'm probably not trying to scare you straight. If you're being obedient, I'm not going to talk a lot about how the day of the Lord is a wicked and terrible, fearsome thing. That's when we get to talk about the promised land, the milk and honey, and the, and the goodness of God. But so oftentimes, when the people were being disobedient, there was this talk of the day of the Lord that was coming. And this was this idea where the, the righteous, and specifically the righteous who had suffered would be redeemed, would be lifted up, would be rescued. But those who have remained or who have become unfaithful, those who have been disobedient, will be punished. And so the, the day of the Lord is a big theme in the Gospel of Mark. Someone read for me, and we'll go back a little bit. I'll go forward, you go back. Someone read for me Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So that's from Daniel. You might remember when we studied Daniel that we talked about the, the first half of Daniel has all the BBS stories. The second half seems a little bit harder to wrestle with. And that's from that second half where Daniel is prophesying about the end of days. And he says, I see one like a son of man coming with the clouds, sitting in glory. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 61 and 62. In Mark 14, Jesus is being questioned. He's on trial before the high priest. They've brought these witnesses to testify against him. And of course, the witnesses are testifying falsely. Because we know Jesus was sinless. There is no word that can be spoken against him. And so the witnesses do not agree. They're accusing him of all these things, but nothing really makes sense. Their testimony does not agree. And so the high priest is he's getting tired of this. He stands up. And in verse 60, he says, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And so Christ, I want to break this down, because again, we're talking about the language and the terms they're using, and all of them are very important. Christ, which means the anointed one, that's where we get it's the same word for Messiah. And you'll notice the high priest is Jewish. The high priest is not going to ask him if you're the son of God because the priest would not say the name of God. We talked about that instead of the Old Testament. Jewish people to this day will not say the, the full name of God. They will probably they will not say Yahweh, but they will probably not even actually say God. They will say Lord. They might say the name. They might say, they'll say a lot of other things, but they will not even say God. And so he's asking him without trying to profane or use the name of the Lord in vain, he's saying, are you the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God? 
the blessed was really a, a euphemism or a placeholder to avoid using the name of God. And so he says, are you the anointed one, the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus almost directly quotes Daniel, certainly references those prophecies in Daniel as he had before when he was speaking about his death uh, to his disciples. But he, he unites, he's trying to tell them that the one who judges the world, the one who the Old Testament says will come to judge the world at the end times, and the one who the Old Testament says will suffer, and the one who it says will be king over God's kingdom, these are all one and the same, and they are being fulfilled through him. Which, of course, they, they view as blasphemy. But Jesus says, I am the Son of God. I am the Anointed One of God. I am the one who will sit at the right hand when judgment comes. And so again, the healing power that is possible through Christ, but the suffering that the church can expect to go through because Jesus suffered are big things. But it's okay if we suffer. Why? Because we know, we know our reward is coming. We know, we know that the one whose sufferings we are sharing in is the one who will redeem us, who will judge us when, when this day of the Lord comes. I believe it's in John 14 or 17 where Jesus says, right, he says, I did not come to judge the world, my will, my, I did not come to judge the world, but my word will judge them when? The last day. And so we could look at a lot of the verses of judgment but we would see a very good portrayal of Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who suffers on behalf of God's people, but also as the one who will sit in power and who will sit in judgment when it comes time for God to judge all of the nations. Questions about the Gospel of Mark so far? Got just a couple minutes so I mentioned uh, Mark, if you're just comparing it, trying, like I said, if you're just looking at it side by side to Luke and Matthew. Uh, it doesn't talk at all about Jesus' birth narrative. It picks right up with Jesus' ministry. It has that very hurried narrative. It ends right after the witnesses to the resurrection. It contains many, many miracles and healings, 20 accounts of miraculous healings. And it does so because these are evidence of God's rule. So let's look at Mark chapter 3. I know we're kind of jumping around looking at all these different concepts, but if we look at Mark chapter 3, we would see that they accuse him of being a sorcerer, of being someone who, who casts out on behalf of, of Beelzebub, which is the, the prince of demons. And of course, Jesus gives that, that wonderful response in, in Mark 3, verse 23. He says, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder the house. And he does this, he says this to tell them that he has come with the power of healing so that they will receive his message, which is something we've talked about in Matthew as well. 
But I point that out to say that Jesus healed lots and lots of people so much so that, that the Jews said there must be kind of sorcery, some kind of magic, some kind of demonic power at work here because this is not right. This is not natural because they're saying this man is claiming to be the son of God and he's healing people. That's blasphemy. There's no way he should be able to heal people. They cannot comprehend what Jesus is doing. But the Gospel of Mark shows us that Jesus healed people as evidence of his authority from God on earth. And if we think about his audience, this makes sense. How am I going to, in Matthew, Jesus has a lot of authority. Why? Because he is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, if you're a Jew, that makes sense. If you're not a Jew, you're saying, what's the Old Testament? Also, I can't read. I don't know what a prophecy is. And so Mark says, well, he is the one who has come, who has, who has healed us. He's healed us in our time of suffering. He's healed our afflictions. He's, he's healed our wounds. And so again, healing, suffering. Jesus, his life was full of healing and suffering. And so as a Christian, your life will be full of healing and suffering. And again, if we think about his Gentile audience who are being persecuted, that makes sense. Because they're going to suffer. But it says there will come a day where we will be redeemed. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you guys. And we'll, we might have a couple more notes on Mark next time, but we'll, we'll basically jump right into Luke because that will take us a while. So thank you.